0: Episode 70, Psychedelics, Panacea, or Psychiatry's New Shiny Object. In a recent episode of the Stand Up Sits Down podcast, which I've linked to in the post accompanying this podcast episode, I shared my concerns about the resurgent interest in the use of psychedelic drugs for the treatment of various forms of psychological distress. If you want to listen into to the podcast, our discussion of this topic begins at around 58 minutes in. Now, before you all bombard me with either hate mail or stories of your wonderful and life-altering experiences with psychedelics, let me make my position clear. As I stressed in that Stand Up, sits Down podcast, I am cautiously optimistic that the use of certain psychedelics may offer substantial benefit to certain people when administered in the correct set or mindset and setting, or physical and social environment, and when followed up with post-trip integration of the psychedelic experiences that is of sufficient duration, and delivered by ethical and skilled individuals. Now, that's a hell of a lot of preconditions that need to be met for a successful outcome, because there's a hell of a lot that can go wrong. For example, an ever-increasing number of people are reporting therapy abuse in the context of psychedelics. By the way, with each of these points, I do have an article, uh, or more than one article, linked up in the Post Accompanies podcast episode, and I'd encourage you to go and, and click on those links and read the articles. Number two concern, I have serious doubts that the conditions for beneficial use of psychedelics can be met by, for example, mail-order at-home ketamine programs, Although thinly veiled advertorials for such programs have appeared in some pretty prominent publications, and one I've linked to in the post accompanying this podcast episode is from Forbes magazine. And my third concern, I have equally grave concerns about many of the versions of traditional psychedelic rituals that are now promoted to Western spiritual tourists given that these rituals are, in essence, suggestibility techniques for inculcating culturally sanctioned beliefs. I've drawn on a most interesting article from the anthropological literature called Psychedelics as Tools for Belief Transmission, Set, Setting, Suggestibility and Persuasion in the Ritual Use of Hallucinogens. Here's a quote from that article. Drawing on cross-cultural data analysis, Grob and Dobkin de Rios, Dobkin de Rios and Stakeleck and Dobkin de Rios et al. Those all refer to articles that are linked up in the post accompanying this podcast episode so these authors have suggested that hallucinogenic substances are used by many indigenous groups to create hyper-suggestible states of consciousness in order to promote fast-paced socialization for religious or pedagogical purposes as enculturating adolescents during puberty rituals led by elders end quote I'm also deeply suspicious of the motives underlying the aggressive proselytising and marketing of psychedelics by a slew of non-profits, universities, pharmaceutical companies, of course, and even venture capitalists. And these proponents of psychedelics include the Australian government's Agency for Scientific Research, CSIRO. My concerns are only heightened by the CIA's sordid history of use of these mind-altering substances in experiments conducted under the auspices of MKUltra, a long-running program of research into mind control. Again, links to relevant articles are in the post accompanying this podcast episode. But the bedrock of my concern is this. The positioning of psychedelics as therapeutic agents for psychological conditions is just a continuation of the pill for every ill mentality that has resulted in Australia, and of course other wealthy nations, becoming populations of chronic drug takers. Consider these alarming statistics. According to a 2018 Roy Morgan poll, almost 90% of Australians aged over 14 years, comprising 93% of women and 85% of men, had taken some form of medication in the last year. In the same year, that is 2018, when Australia's population stood at 25,180,200, 9 million people were taking at least one prescribed medicine every day. So that's just shy of one third of the population, with 8 million taking two or more prescribed medicines in a week and more than 2 million taking over-the-counter medicine daily daily. In 2021, the Australian Government spent $13.9 billion on medication subsidised by two schemes, the PBS and the RPBS, which jointly underwrite almost all prescribed medicines and some over-the-counter medicines and non-drug items, accounting for 81% of the cost of PBS and RPBS medicines. This works out to $541 spent per person. Consumers paid the remaining $3.2 billion toward their PBS and RPBS prescriptions. Also in 2020-21, 4.5 million individuals, that's 17.7% of the Australian population, filled a prescription for a so-called mental health-related medication with an average of 9.4 prescriptions per patient. 73.1% of these mental health-related prescriptions filled were for antidepressant medications. Females are one and a half times as likely to be prescribed a so-called mental health-related medication as males, and the percentage of people on such brain-altering drugs rises stepwise with age. An astounding 41% of Australians aged over 85 are on prescription medications for a purported mental health condition. So, what do we have to show for this profligate spending on pharmaceuticals? We're fatter, sicker and more miserable than ever before. A sane but naïve person would conclude that if the so-called health system that we have isn't actually delivering healthier, happier people, then it's not working, and those running it should try a different approach. A cynic, on the other hand, would observe that every system produces exactly the outcomes it was designed to produce. To the pharmaceutical medical industrial complex, production of permanently ill, chronically unhappy people is a feature, not a bug. And so, now that the serotonin deficiency slash biochemical imbalance hypothesis of depression has been comprehensively debunked, and the much-vaunted serotonin-modulating antidepressants are losing their sheen, the psychedelic industrial complex is wheeling in the next miracle cure for human misery. They even have a new version of the NeuroBabble that was used to sell us on selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, and serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, SNRIs, as the salves for our suffering. As Dr. Joanna Moncrief, author of the devastating dismantling of the serotonin hypothesis that I referenced in my previous article, Has Psychiatry Finally Reached Its Apocalypse Now Moment, crisply observes, quote, in an interview published in Nature magazine, psychopharmacologist and psychedelic researcher David Nutt suggests that psychedelics, quote, turn off parts of the brain that relate to depression, end quote, and, quote, reset the brain's thinking processes, end quote, via their actions on cortical 5-HT2A receptors. Others assert that they enhance brain connectivity. The John Hopkins University website alleges they offer the promise of, quote, Precision medicine treatments tailored to the specific needs of individual patients, end quote. All these claims are pure speculation, end quote. And that quote was from Joanna Moncrief's article, Psychedelics, The New Psychiatric Craze. Forgive me if, like Joanna Moncrief, I'm a little less than wildly enthusiastic about the latest panacea. I've seen this movie before. No doubt the busy bee researchers who plowed gazillions of taxpayer dollars into studies like the one that found that people whose antidepressant prescriptions were guided by pharmacogenomic testing weren't any less likely to be depressed after six months on their super sciencey selected drugs than people whose doctors just put them on whatever random happy pill they felt like dishing out that day, will happily pivot to burning up taxpayer dollars on studies that eventually find that pharmacogenomically guided psychedelic prescriptions Aren't any more effective than buying a pill from some shady dude at a rave. Because, as Will Hall incisively observes, quote, psychedelics, as weird, unpredictable, mind shaking, and life altering as they can be, are still the same underground marketed drugs. They intoxicate you, get you high, and you come down, end quote. And that quote was from the article called Ending the Silence Around Psychedelic Therapy Abuse. What I find particularly irritating about the pro-psychedelic neuro babble is that the biological mechanisms by which these potent intoxicating agents are claimed to exert their curative effects on psychological suffering are also activated by a simple, safe, health-promoting intervention that doesn't put people at risk of therapy abuse or bad trips and is known to be more effective than either medication or psychotherapy for relieving depression, anxiety and psychological distress. What is this secret wellness weapon, you ask? It's called exercise. For example, last year, Japanese researchers reported that the, quote, rapid and sustained antidepressant-like actions of ketamine, end quote, are mediated by increased levels of insulin-like growth factor 1, IGF-1, and brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF, within the brain. They speculated that IGF-1 signaling in the medial prefrontal cortex of the brain might be crucial to the enhanced neuroplasticity, that is, the ability of the brain to rewire itself in response to experience, which is believed to induce the antidepressant effects of ketamine. The press release announcing the study breathlessly forecast a whole new line of drug development arising from this discovery. ka quote, the link between ketamine and IGF-1 presents a brand new direction for future studies investigating antidepressants that target IGF-1 directly, end quote. That was from the press release titled, using ketamine to find an undiscovered pathway in depression. Now, you know what also raises both IGF-1 and BDNF levels within the brain and increases neuroplasticity? You guessed it exercise added bonus exercise does it without causing quote dependence hallucinations and delusions end quote what would be the fun in that and more to the point who would turn a profit from it a recently published umbrella review of physical activity interventions found that exercise predictably reduces anxiety depression and psychological distress And furthermore, it's about 50% more effective at doing so than either medication or cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. Higher intensity exercise programs of between 6 and 12 weeks duration were shown to be more effective than lower intensity exercise, such as moderate paced walking, yoga, and pilates. But all forms of physical activity demonstrated beneficial effects on psychological function. Furthermore, exercise enhances depressed people's ability to feel happy when good things happen to them. That is, it combats anhedonia or reduced motivation or ability to experience pleasure, which is a hallmark of depression. On the other hand, SSRI antidepressants reduce reinforcement sensitivity, causing emotional blunting, that is reduced ability to feel either happy or sad in 40 to 60% of patients taking these drugs. This reduction in reinforcement sensitivity also causes reduced ability to reach orgasm, even in non-depressed people. Sexual dysfunction is a widely reported and exceptionally distressing adverse effect of SSRIs, which often persists long after people stop taking the drugs. And of course, exercise has an immense number of positive side effects on many of the pathophysiological hallmarks of depression and anxiety. To name just a few, exercise reduces visceral adipose tissue, the deep belly fat that is associated with heightened risk of depression. Exercise reduces inflammation, while depressed people have elevated levels of inflammatory chemicals both in their brains and throughout their bodies. Exercise helps to overcome insulin resistance. Insulin resistance is strongly associated with increased risk of developing major depressive disorder. And as mentioned previously, exercise increases secretion of IGF-1 and BDNF, both of which rapidly exert antidepressant effects. Now, it may turn out that psychedelics are safer and more effective than SSRIs, SNRIs, and all the previous drugs that have been proffered as solutions to the pain of life. They may turn out to not cause emotional blunting or sexual dysfunction or bone fractures or terrible withdrawal symptoms. Although, as Joanna Moncrief points out, the early promise that psychedelics would cure depression in just one to two sessions has not panned out, with many people converting to long-term users. But even if they do prove superior to other psychoactive medications, my question will still be, are they better than exercise? That is, can any drug be more effective at improving mood, enhancing your ability to feel happy, and boosting your sense of self-efficacy, all while making you physically healthier and reducing your need for other pharmaceuticals, such as drugs for high blood pressure, diabetes, and high cholesterol, than exercise? Because if it doesn't work better across the board than exercise, then by definition, it's an inferior treatment. And I would question whether it should be publicly funded. Whatever the benefits of psychedelics may be, I would take a lot of convincing that, at least in the current economic and social context, they're not feeding into the pill for every ill mentality that has generated our thoroughly dysfunctional, not healthcare system. Now, if you think you can change my mind, I am very open to respectful dialogue on this topic, so please leave your comments in the comment section below this podcast episode.